Welcome to Serially Hooked Star Wars. We're your hookers, Chris and Rashad, and today, live a little dog. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and at seriallyhooked.com where you can get all our latest info. Make sure to subscribe so you'll have all our episodes coming to your podcast app of choice through the miracles of technology. Of course, we'll continue our weekly coverage of The Mandalorian and also have another weekly hook coming for you soon. And with that, those mud scruffers bombed my home. Woo! Super excited to be here today, Chris. Uh, just what a wonderful ride to go on. Um, and I, it's a very different episode of The Mandalorian than a usual one. But I'm very excited to talk to you today about it. How are you feeling? Good, as you said, you know it's it's quite a different one. I think maybe I think there was one more episode, another episode where also Mando was barely in it, but I enjoyed it a lot, seeing some old faces again, and you know some fun uh, interactions for sure. And the the end just has me very curious. So uh, I'm I'm very happy about this episode, and uh, you know uh obviously talking about it is kind of the best part of it almost so uh let's get let's let's get into it yeah so we start basically right after bo saved din uh from drowning basically and uh din is slowly coming to and they have a little chit chat about uh what happened uh, but din has successfully cleansed himself and is taking some water with him as proof. What do you think of the of the little back and forth there? Well, I mean, it's I think the 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 key to the show or this beginning is that Bo-Katan doesn't reveal to him what's going on, um, and mm-hmm. that she saw the mythosaur. Um, it's interesting that she just asks him the question, and also we get a we get sort of the confirmation that he fell, and it wasn't that he was pulled down. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of things that are interesting in this little like sequence, but I find it um, fascinating in the ever-evolving relationship between Bo-Katan and Mando, where the question really remains, how are they going to um, evolve and how specifically is Bo-Katan going to position herself for the future re- rule of Mandalore or the Mandalorian people? I think... Uh, we're we're going to talk about this again at the end of the episode, but um, uh, yeah, I was also very struck by her avoiding to mentioning uh, the mythosaur, and yeah, then they obviously are trying to <laughs> trying to get back to her place, but uh, she really, not to say royally fucked over someone, so they are trying to get back at her, it seems, but maybe not. Maybe it, there's something bigger at plan here. Maybe this is Moff, something related to Moff Gideon as well. Who knows? But anyway, they're attacked by TIE Interceptors, and we have a pretty good, I think, uh, action sequence here. Pretty good? That was fucking incredible. <laughs> what are you talking about? That was like so cinematic. That was impressive. That was like on the scale on the scale of like the best Star Wars films. That was a great yeah. sequence. You have so many great creative aerial maneuvers. You have like this split up and you have this really cool back and forth. It's just 
whoa and even like little details like our five freaking owls or baby yoda like like closing his little pod thing when it gets like little emergencies that was a great sequence i don't know if we were talking about that to start with i never <laughs> thought we were talking about just the cave up until now like whoa you're just gonna like roll past probably the best part of this episode god damn it chris no 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 i mean i think it's actually a testament to the show that i sometimes forget it's a show and not just basically movies and because the quality is so high so I think I just I just measure it up against, you know, the best of Star Wars there is. And so I think it holds up with uh, the best space battles we've seen. So that's basically what I meant to say. Uh, but yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah uh, as you said, you know, there's some incredible maneuvers. I love the, uh, you know, Din using his jetpack to kind of get back to his ship and everything. And then uh in true din fashion just like kills everyone uh i was i was uh you know you please please sing more of the praise of this scene but all the while i was just wondering why is r5 on bo katan's ship did they they actually took him with them and uh, i mean obviously they did they must have but it's also why but uh, it made for some uh chuckles for sure well, because R5 has to communicate where they are. I mean, Grogu can only point, right? So That's R5 true. has the navigational history of where the ship went and where they have to pick up Mando. <laughs> so it to- makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was just, I just forgot that he was there. And then suddenly he <laughs> fell over in the ship. And I was like, oh, he's there too, too for some comic relief. Uh, but yeah, R5, such a great character as well. I, I so love that they brought him back. One thing that's interesting is that I find, uh, maybe it was just me, that it took um, Din Djarin quite a bit of effort to get down on the ship. I think he's still, I don't know if he's still getting used to the backpack or the jetpack. It's been a few years since he's had it because he got it at the end of season one. So, like, why is he still in my, uh, maybe I'm just reading too much into it that it seems that he is still kind of like futzing around with it he doesn't know how actually how to fly with it quite well compared to when we saw in season two how Bo-Katan and her crew were so smooth using their jetpacks yeah but I mean we've seen it before that he's not the best flyer with a jetpack and don't forget he jumped out of a fucking you know uh speeding uh I almost said plane but a spaceship going back to uh his 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 very own fighter and all that wind, all that speed is going to do something to you. Uh, and I'm sure it takes someone who's very experienced like Bo-Katan to actually handle it quite well. I hold Din Djarin to the highest of standards and anything less than that <laughs> is mediocrity to me. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I said about this fight, fight scene. It's like I hold it to the best of standards. So we're on the same page kind of on the macro and the micro level. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, obviously like a riveting scene and then we get the huge surprise at the uh, end, I want to say. Not the, not really the end, but uh, when we think everything is uh, is done, we see that actually, as I said in the intro, they just bombed her entire castle, uh, which was such a severe scene, I thought. You could really see the power there, like the just the the shock in her voice and just the ferociousness of the bombers if you wanted to say like just like how quickly they managed to just destroy everything was pretty impressive and pretty scary i mean it's like quite ferocious as you said these imperial bombers coming out of nowhere really does 
make me question where are they like coming from where mm-hmm. is the base or the ship or the i don't know how is this going to tie into everything else i'm sure bo katan's going to want some sort of revenge she knows what's going on in the sector so i guess we'll find out and also i, I understand conceptually that she was living there by herself but really that doesn't make that much sense there would be other people <laughs> at least like a couple mm. other people like some cleaning people i'm not sure <laughs> I mean, she's she has droids. She definitely has droids to attend to her. We've seen them before, or at least one of them. So That's a good point. I always forget about droids. She doesn't have a single friend? Yeah. Apparently not. Uh, there, she did say that a lot of... I mean, it doesn't make sense, as you said, uh, even though a lot of the people f- just shrugged her off. Uh, I don't see that not even like a few people would come with her. But I guess that makes for more confusing uh, logistics of, you know, would only then she come to uh, Mando's aid on Mandalore or what's going on here? Um, So maybe that was just like the convenience of storytelling. I see. Okay, so this brings up an interesting question for me. What do the prevalence of droids in this universe mean for the service industry? Where do all the jobs go? What do all the people do if they don't have jobs? What's happening here? It's very like, huh. There is no like place for people in this world that aren't just friends with other people. Like, what do you do? I guess you all go to Tatooine and become moisture farmers. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, even that could be done by droids as well. So like a lot of the jobs we see people do, w- droids could just do. Even like when we were on uh, Navarro, we saw like this droid preparing food. So you don't actually have to t- be able to taste to be able to prepare food, I guess is what they're saying. I'm sure you would disagree. Uh, and, <laughs> and um, you know... I don't know. It's one of these things. Is, um, droids are just a murky, murky subject in Star Wars. What is their sort of legal position and what does it mean for society? It, if you just think it through, it doesn't make sense that not all the jobs are done by droids, but maybe there are not that many to begin with. Uh, who knows? I guess it's just a question of what's more expensive to use human or, I yeah. mean, I guess humanoid labor or use droid labor because i think if you remember um the slave revolts or the slave um slavery on what was the planet called um where han solo they went in the solo movie with l3's rebellion i was i was thinking of the same thing uh i don't i can't remember right now but yeah if you don't if you only have to feed the people then it makes sense to just keep them um even though there was also a droid revolt so that's nice why can't I think of the name of this planet? <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Uh, I'm sure somebody's screaming uh, at at their uh, podcast app of choice right now. Uh, <laughs> um, it's Kessel, by the way. Oh, my God. The Kessel run. I can't <laughs> believe I could forget the Kessel. Oh, my God. Yeah, because you think of it as a space thing, not as a planet. So everybody calm down. We got it. We got there in the end. It's all good. (laughs) 
yeah, no, we're terrible at this. Or clearly, I can't remember anything about anything. Um, I mean, you you have a you. If I've if I've learned anything, uh, podcasting for you with you for over for almost two years now, it's that you're shit at remembering names. <laughs> but uh, I think really that's just the, the question. It's about economics of labor in the Star Wars universe. It's really interesting to me. I wish we get more clarity on that. Questions that I think only a show like Andor would dive into. And mm. I really hope that they do dive into it next season. But I guess maybe that kind of transitions into what this episode like was like. Because it to me, it read like an Andor episode on like easy mode. Like level one yeah. <laughs> Andor episode. Um, I don't think it was the same quality as Andor for sure. But it had yeah. some of those similar tones. Made me feel like it's building out the world and looking at details and questions and these kinds of um, bureaucratic um, ideas. Uh, and questions of power, questions of of um, da, 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 or even psychology of is it of atonement and all these interesting uh, themes throughout the episode. Uh, I don't want to steal your thunder here, but that's kind of how I um, kind of thought about the middle of this episode, where you have the the beginning and the end, which are obviously Mando and not Dinard, Mando and what's her name, Bo-Katan, and then Bo-Katan. the middle of it is more so these like Andor type feels. A hundred percent. Yeah, we go to Coruscant, and I was very confused at the beginning because I I thought, okay, they're gonna go to Coruscant, even after we see a good old Doctor Pershing uh, at his TED talk. Basically, uh, we uh, I was I thought like, oh, are they going to him? That doesn't make any sense. But no, we get just a huge chunk of just him with uh, our favorite if you want to call it imperial officer who apparently survived um but yeah first off we don't want to get ahead of ourselves we go to my new favorite word the accumulopolis of coruscant um which i thought was a kind of ridiculous but also kind of fun way of thinking about it just top-notch work (laughs) that was just so (laughs) creative i love it i'm gonna use that all the time a hundred percent this is so, also it's a perfect way of just you know uh describing what coruscant is uh and yeah so he the dr pershing is in a sort of rehabilitation program he gives his as i mentioned kind of a ted talk about his uh life his work and rubs elbows with a lot no rubs shoulders what is it i don't know he is in any case, just schmoozing with a lot of the elite and the bougie people on Coruscant before going back to his little uh, rehabilitation camp or whatever they call it, the Amnesty Housing, that's right, um, with a bunch of other former like uh, imperial soldiers and officers and whatnot. And we see, yeah, our good old friend Gideon's officer, whose name I cannot remember. I don't know if they... Elia I think Kane. she introduces herself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, they talk about biscuits and what they miss. Uh, and a lot of things come from here. I don't want to go, go too far into it. Uh, but what do you think of the opening here? So I really liked the schmoozing after the TED Talk where it made me mm-hmm. think a lot about the questions of who profits from war and who profits from conflict and then how so much of this 
universe is us focused on the periphery and focused on places like fucking Tatooine that see the brunt of the war. And in reality, though, there's, as I said, a trillion residents on this planet, just as examples of those who are completely or wholly untouched by the war. And mm. they have often profited from it. And it, it brings up some of the themes that were brought in uh, The Last Jedi. And I yeah. really like this idea of, oh, okay, we don't really care about the politics. We're just involved for our own um, selfish reasons. And we're going to profit no matter what. And we're going to be happy no matter what. Yeah. Yeah, the best the best slash worst part was the one guy. Like, oh, can you me? I was almost getting drafted. Can you imagining? Can you imagine me at the front line? Ha ha ha! <laughs> oh my god! And then, then also his like partner, like that was the Empire, <laughs> not the Republic. You idiot! I do find these questions of amnesty in general fascinating to me as well. Where it's like this is a good idea. And I understand mm -hmm. why they're trying to differ differ from the Empire itself. But in practice, we can start to see the flaws in the execution of this program. In particular, where you have you're 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 not really um being careful with how you're placing people. You, there's a lack of humanity with the way that they treat each other or they treat these people. Yeah. And it does seem that there's um especially kind of at this beginning. Um, you you really get this dreary feel of this home right after the great elegance of this banquet hall, and apparently it is the same opera house where um, Darth Sidious tried to lure Anakin Skywalker to the dark side, where he's telling him about the powers of Dark Plagueis, and they're watching a big opera. Uh, it's the same house. It's that same opera house. So it's kind of interesting callback to that, where you're considering this gallant um excess and then immediately juxtaposed with look at these amnesty housing that's in really really bad condition and some people seem happy i guess but as soon as you see elia kane you're like ah oh, man nope this is not going to go well for pershing yeah <laughs> exactly that's exactly what i thought it's like no this is this is not going to work out <laughs> and uh yeah it doesn't spoiler alert but um yeah, I, I love the contrast between the opera house and the, the amnesty housing as well. Um, and I love that we see some not so great sides of the Republic as well. I think it makes a very good point about just, you know, you could say that even even the uh, this, the countries that, you know, um, are, are perceived or like like to perceive of themselves as like the best of the best have some shit things on their <laughs> on their agenda and you know i i guess like looking at refugees is a good uh point to to see how a society uh really functions and yeah i mean obviously we'll get into this later but there are some pretty harrowing things going on um for now we get what i thought was being portrayed of some sort of like cuteness not not necessarily romance but you know there was some bonding going on between kane and uh and pershing which i thought was pretty cute but also i never bought entirely because i just i didn't trust it at all but it was nice you know they're going kind of going on a stroll uh with uh, i love the bit where like oh this this rock is the last kind of part of the natural part of coruscant and you know, no, touch it. And then obviously, you know, Kane knows that 
you know, the, the alarm would be sounding kind of sets pushing up. That was kind of fun. Um, the weird like ice cream or whatever it is as well, kind of a fun note. Um, and I don't know, just like the, we have this whole, what felt like 10 minutes, uh, just them kind of bonding a little bit. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if you ever, you said, you said, uh, just now that you, you thought as soon as you saw Kane, like, oh, there's not going to go well. So how did you feel during the sequence of events? I mean, the whole thing was just, oh, she's setting him up. She's setting him up. She's setting him up. Yeah. I had no doubt in my mind. That was yeah. nothing. Yeah, I was not um, fooled. I did like to see the different things in Coruscant. That was kind of cool. Um, mm -hmm. I really did like the the top of the mountain because it made me really think of Earth and see if, like, imagine if we had on this planet had built up so much that the only thing you can see from the natural part of our planet would be the top of Mount Everest. That would be insane. Yeah. I, I mean, it just, like, it made me really think, Obviously, it's all fictional, but it um, I, a it's a comment on like how they've destroyed the the nature of the planet, obviously. Mm -hmm. But b I think it kind of um, creates one little anchor of reality that seems like somewhat natural in a place that is just this entire CGI magnet. So I I I, uh, I really found that a really interesting square to think of, and then obviously their relationship. Um, I, I really made me start to think of um, how these kinds of, how do I say, generosity can be manipulated by those who mm -hmm. are ha have mal intentions. Yeah, she she's like, and but okay, so obviously she fucks him over later. We're gonna get to that, but I was always I was like just wondering throughout, like, who is she working for? And uh, maybe we can discuss that at the end of the episode, but uh, because I have a few ideas, some more stronger than others, but uh, I was just like throughout, just okay, obviously she's gonna fuck him over. It's okay. <laughs> like I'm, I'm bracing myself for that. I'm fine with that. But all, but still, it was like, but but who for? It's very interesting because they kind of try to do this thing where she is maybe doing it for the republic, but I'm not buying that. So. Uh, No. no, there's no way. I think uh, they're clearly leading us to believe that this is the the sowing the seeds to the, for the first order. That's what this yeah, is yeah. doing. This is what's clear for me right now. So she's clearly working yeah, yeah. for Thrawn or Moff Gideon or someone of that nature um, to bring about the first order. So I, I mean, yeah. I don't think it's really that important to know who she's working for. It'll be interesting to see who the answer is, but yeah. we know what their what their desires are and their designs. Um, the question for me is i guess at the end of the episode about the the mind flare but we can get to that sort of at the end <laughs> okay let's then uh, quickly go through and everything that happens until the mind flare so no let's take our time uh, sweet time <laughs> <laughs> so we have the uh we have pershing being you know, increasingly frustrated by not really being able to use his entire set of capabilities to help the Republic again, like kind of agent provocateur style by Kane kind of egging him on. It's like, yeah, this is for the good of the Republic. Of course, of course I can get you a, whatever it was like a mobile lab. And, uh, you know, he has these kind of reintegration interviews with the droid again. Why does a droid do this thing? Uh, I'm not quite sure, but okay. <laughs> It's a very, very inhuman, literally. 
um, and not necessarily able to perceive the kind of details of human emotion, it would seem. And, um, you know, then apparently, then at the end, Kane kind of pushes him to actually go with her to to the scrapyard, whatever it is. And um, for some reason, he gets a trench coat, which I just thought was like, okay, of course, he's wearing a trench coat, trying to be all sneaky sneaky here. Uh, that was kind of a little bit too much of the real world in Star Wars for me, but that's fine. Um, and they go on the basically on the train, and uh, yeah, they it's it's kind of fun. You you mentioned as well, like just going through Coruscant as well is something that's really enjoyable. We've talked, especially when we're talking about um, Clone Wars. Uh, about like just seeing the lower levels of a city like Coruscant, not just where all the like fancy Jedi are and their allies, but just like seeing everything in the city. And just I, th I thought like going on the train was kind of a glimpse at that as well. I mean, okay, you went through a lot right there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like here's the whole episode. React, Rashad. Um, so I think there's a, okay, so I don't even know where to start. I'm going to start with, uh, I think, the most inhumane thing of this show. And I think the, the show's the highlight, highest flaws of the Empire or the, the New Republic is the parole workers scene, I guess you can call mm -hmm. it that, with the droid. And that, as you, sh I think you said, or maybe I said this in my head, I'm not sure, um, is <laughs> the um, lack of humanity with which that um, kind of, is, is handled and how it really really showed to me that the new republic doesn't really understand what it means to um have amnesty or to really like um try and rehabilitate people because they're not putting the requisite resources towards um building these people up and questioning and, and really like interacting with them on a human level because it's clear to me that that's not a priority. And anyone who's sitting in a room with a droid who's answering these kinds of questions that, as you said, um, can't respond to human emotion properly will feel the same exact thing. And you can see that transformation on Pershing's eyes throughout the this, the, the consequential scenes. And it really did remind me of like a like a, either a Turing test or different kinds mm. of interactions between humans and machines that we have. And it's clear here that this is a droid that uh, is less than um, uh, less than able to do its job, and it's an oversight by the New Republic. So that's on the one hand, and then on top of that, the the other sort of just silly, silly, stupid things that they're doing. Things like, as as Pershing points out, destroying Imperial technology just because it's mm -hmm. Imperial, but it could be useful. And it does seem really that Pershing is the type of scientist who just believes science is neutral and it's all in the hands of the person who uses it. And the, the New Republic and its bureaucrats just seem incapable of understanding that. And it kind of makes sense. Um, I don't know if at this point... No, I don't think Coruscant at this point is the... Um, the capital of the the new republic because the new republic capitals changes um uh, periodically as opposed to just being singular like on coruscant uh but it just goes to show how um this bureaucratic uh system doesn't a doesn't change um in, in its ineptitude from one system to the other and b it just doesn't 
work in this context trying to actually bring people um from the empire and put them to good use but obviously like the biggest comp for this and the biggest um sort of real world um utilization or uh, similar similar situation that happened i think that this show is alluding to is the um the united states re as they said, rehabilitating um, Nazi scientists and, and and social or leaders into the United yeah. States um, of infrastructure for the Cold War purposes. And I think that this is a clear allusion to that. Um, I don't know what it necessarily means in terms of pointing out the ineptitude of the United States and its bureaucracy, um, especially at that time, which I'm sure obviously there are many people and many faults in that. Um, but I it really did just remind me of a lot of those questions as well in terms of is this possible um what are the impacts of that on on the actual society and what happens when you actually do this and and when you fail um to do it in certain cases and what are the risks you're taking with regards to that in terms of manipulation by people like Elia kane yeah 100 uh thanks on elaborating everything i went a little bit too quick here <laughs> uh but yeah there is a lot in here for sure um yeah, I don't know. It's just, I think the, especially the droid interview stuff is very much just like a very good depiction of bureaucracy because honestly, like in, when it comes to bureaucracy, you're, you might as well be dealing with a droid because most people are just like, does this check our boxes? Yes or no. And there is no real part, like no, not a lot of wiggle room for nuance and empathy. So I thought that that was a pretty good um, depiction of it. And yeah, I don't know, like the, uh, I think, yeah, the whole allegory part of, of you know, the uh, integration post Second World War, 100%, that's what I was thinking about, uh, especially because it is about somebody like Pershing. Uh, and I totally agree that he's definitely the kind of person who's like, yeah, science is neutral. And oh, well, I mean, we could have used this for this, but these people use it for that. So, you know, that's kind of sad, but I can still use it for something good. So it's not, technology isn't inherently bad. It's just, you know, the people who use it, who misuse it. So, yeah, I agree with everything you said, basically. <laughs> What's interesting is that this episode has such good stuff in it. It just yeah. seems so out of whack for this show to do this because it just seems mm -hmm. like it's cutting off a lot of momentum that the the dinjarin storyline mm -hmm. had and it really makes me think what is going to happen with this like what's the point yeah. if it's just going to be sort of if this is our version of last season's fish people episode where it's just like these people show up and they come <sighs> back and they don't do anything that's fine yeah. whatever it's at least better than that if it has something, I, and I'm sure it's not that because it, it with with the Lia Kane continuing, I'm sure it has some consequences on the larger storyline. But what is it like? What's the point? It just does seem that it, it's like it's a jarring. Like you're 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 going on fifth gear. You're seeing a great dogfight with Imperial Tie Fighter or Tie Interceptors. Mm. You just saw the uh, Mythosaur, and then you're just like, whoa, go all the way down to second gear, and like <laughs> you're really slowing us down, which is fine. Um, it just really did seem um, an interesting choice that we haven't seen this show make yet. It's almost like John Favreau watched Andor and thought, "I want some of that in my show as well." Um, <laughs> uh, but I think it definitely will come back because you know there is a clear line between uh, Grogu and Pershing, 
and you know all of the experiments we've seen throughout both episodes uh, both seasons so far and with you know the uh let's say increased dosage of the mind flare on pershing where i assume his brain is kind of fried now uh i'm sure that will have repercussions and whoever kane works for uh you know just wanted to maybe tie up loose ends and i'm sure there will be some sort of consequence for din and especially grogu uh what that will be time will tell but i i kind of see a clear connection here yeah it'll happen it's just it, it's it's a wonder it's, it's an interesting choice that's all i'm having yeah I'm trying to say i like that they're leaving breadcrumbs now but i agree that they're definitely in terms of the pacing it was a little weird it's like we have we have this whole episode last time that is just ha has all of these incredible revelations and with this one as well at the beginning where Bo-Katan's castle is just destroyed and then we just <laughs> go to Coruscant for like half an hour uh, which was kind of interesting definitely had some Andor vibes but uh, yeah also like pacing has some pacing issues for sure no, I don't think it's pacing issues per se. It's just a different pace because you expect yeah. a certain thing from a different show. Because going from Andor to then going to Mando, the first couple episodes is actually quite jarring because Mando is a lot faster than Andor. You have to forget yeah. that you're not dealing with a, such a detail-oriented show. You're going from place to place to place to place to kind of like see the world and the universe, right? It's a classic Star Wars exploration thing. Yeah. But then in this show that you go you go back to like an Andor style. We're going to spend a whole episode in one city kind of vibe. And then we're going back again, conceivably to jumping from planet to planet with Grogu and Din. So it's just, it's not a bad thing. It's just a very different thing on one end to the other. I mean, I did think that it kind of, I mean, they could have cut a little bit, but uh, overall I, I agree. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we, we are now then in the train and there is you know again the checking for uh the fair is done by droids not by humanoids which i thought yeah also again where empathy is not needed droids can 100 percent do the job um and kane and pershing decide to or rather kane heavily heavily pushes almost literally pershing to jump off the train uh, and here it just becomes incredibly obvious that she is the driving force here. And uh, they end up at this junkyard with this disused Star Destroyer, which just, again, every time I just see a Star Destroyer on the ground, obviously it's not as epic as in The Force Awakens on, uh, you know, um, whatever. What, Jakku. Jakku, I almost said Jeddah, but I thought this can't be it. Uh, yeah, but I mean, obviously that was super epic. It's less epic here, maybe also because it's a junkyard, but it's still every time I just think, wow, this is just so, so impressive. I mean, I, I found that really cool. Obviously, I mean, it's I it's transition. I didn't think much of this. I was just like, okay, yeah, I yeah. knew this is happening. Um, Elia Kane is just she's setting him up setting him up setting him up let's see what the payoff is i guess yeah yeah 100 percent. and uh yeah the payoff is that after collecting quite a bunch of material from that lab they get caught quote-unquote by republican troops 
and it is revealed shocker that uh kind of kane is ratting him out or was setting him up all along and well Persian gets readjusted and i think just his pleas were really really heartbreaking he knows ex- he is a scientist he knows what's going to happen to him he knows exactly what kind of machine it is and the uh the other guy is like oh no no this is not a mind flare it's a it's a it's a similar design but it's not as bad it's going to be fine and Persian just knows what's going to happen to him but there's nothing he can do it's very dystopian i want to say and obviously then we have the uh back and forth with uh kane and the person who controls the dials and who then just leaves so that kane can just increase the level of mind flaying i'm just gonna call it uh so stupid it's just also it doesn't make any sense like why okay this person has kind of proven that she is helping you but why would you leave her alone in the room that doesn't make any sense why would you just have the dial easily accessible like that put it in a lockbox <laughs> yeah. or just turn it up yeah. turn a limit or something so stupid yeah exactly and then obviously we see yeah as i mentioned before pershing's brain kind of being fried uh and i guess we'll find out later what that means for him maybe you skipped the most exciting thing about this scene where Pershing turns to a Mon Calamar and is just like, it's a trap. It was a trap. <laughs> it's so funny. Oh, that's true. That's true. I didn't even think of that. Wow. How did you not? Oh, my God. I think I wasn't paying attention as much, uh, but that's amazing. I need to rewatch that scene now. <laughs> that's so good. And then also, oh. like, the fact that, I mean, for you also, that a Mind Flayer is clearly a D&D monster. Of That's course. what they got their name from. I'm just like, oh, yeah. I know what that is. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> yeah, if anybody is wondering what that what that's about, listen to our D&D episodes. Internal um, promotions! We're doing so yay. well! <laughs> or, I guess, cross-promoting is how you call it. Cross-promoting, <laughs> yeah. We're so good at this. Uh, <laughs> um... Yeah, yeah, I was I was thinking as soon as they mentioned Mind Flare, I was like, okay, this is there are no purple tentacles here. What are you talking about? Um <laughs> now now everybody who doesn't know D&D is going to be so confused. Um it kind of yeah, reminds that, me more of like the um the Borgullet on actually on Jedha where um Yeah. Uh, what's his name? Saw Gerrera uses on the pilot in uh, mm-hmm. whichever movie that was, Rogue One. Rogue One. Yeah, it's really interesting. That's it's like it's like a mechanical version of a Borgullet. Yeah, it's very true. Uh, and I mean, it seems to be less taxing, like on the on the on a conscious level. But I don't know how much consciousness and subconsciousness is going to be left uh, after this procedure. Uh, so we'll. I mean, you mentioned it earlier, and I 100% agree. It's it's like someone. I'm pretty sure it's going to be Thrawn at this point because obviously Gideon is not is like in a prison somewhere, at least as far as we know. But not and according Thrawn to the the people that we saw that we listened to today, right? Or saw on true. screen. They were talking about rumors that Gideon escaped, never went on trial, all these things. So true, true. There's a really good chance that he doesn't actually make it to justice or whatever you want to call it he, he escaped yeah. 
and he could still be the villain here in this third season. But I guess we'll find yeah. out with that. I actually think after watching this episode, that's more likely than Thrawn. I doubt we're yeah. going to see Thrawn in this season. Uh, more likely we're going to see Gideon come back. Yeah, that's. I think so as well. I was just kind of hoping that we'd see like a little glimpse of Thrawn where Kane just reports back to him. And then we just see it a little bit as a teaser for the Ahsoka show. But um, yeah, you're probably right that it is Gideon, which also makes sense because she's his officer. So uh, that would be the obvious uh, choice here. It makes sense because if you think about some of the Easter eggs they've been putting in earlier or the breadcrumbs, I guess, where the armor questions the New Republic's ability to bring him to justice when Din Djarin tells her that Moff Gideon um, is going to like face justice in a tribunal or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It does seem that, on uh, especially on the Mando side, where he tells people where Moff Gideon was, people kind of were like, eh, that's not going to happen. Like they, they kind of like don't believe him in a way. And I yeah. wonder if this is going to corrupt his belief system in the New Republic and then its institutions. And this is kind of another from the other end. Now we're seeing the rumors of Moff Gideon escaping, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it's really, I think, leading to a Moff Gideon, um, maybe Mando or Moff Gideon um, Dinjarin conflict. And um, I wonder what's going to be the outcome of that this time. Will he pass the judgment instead of um, then surrendering him to New Republic uh, forces again? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny how gullible Din is sometimes. But, I mean, I guess it makes sense. He's a follower of a cult. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, like, he got snatched up as a child by a cult. He believes in authority 100%. Uh, so it kind of makes sense that he would also trust the New Republic. I'm just so excited to see what happens. I think that my understanding of the Mind Flayer, the way that she turned it up like that, my understanding is that it erases his memory completely and he's no longer himself at all. I'm not sure what that means, really. If he's going to come back and he's still going to have his science knowledge, he's just going to miss the recent memory or something of that nature. But it really is interesting to me I think the way they left it, if we never see Pershing again, we have to assume he just lost all of his memory. Um, But what they still left it open to the point they could potentially bring him back. And I'd be surprised if they never bring him back. Yeah, I I would be shocked as well. I think she also doesn't dial it up like 100%. She just increases it. Uh, So, yeah, who knows? I guess we might find out in the future. And I I would hope that... uh, that we do one theory that i heard was that um she's turning it up to the point where he feels tortured but not so that he forgets so then he gets Mm. disillusioned as well from the new republic and then she can use that to convince him oh the new republic does this as well work with us we're still like i mean what's the difference between the new republic and the empire they're both evil kind of vibe so i'm wondering if Mm. that's the angle i don't personally buy that theory i'm more by the theory that she's just she's just trying to like X him off the board, um, yeah. or she and probably Moff Gideon or Thrawn or whatever. But um, I that's just something I had to put out there to see what you think about that potential theory. I mean, how then he would also have to forget that she did it to him, like that she handed him over. Because how? Why would she? Like, how would he trust her? Like after what she did to him, uh, so that uh, like even that just it falls flat for me. Um, I kind of see the point, 
uh, like what this theory is going for, but I'm not convinced. Cool, same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, they have all of his, like, data. Like, what do they ne need him for at this point? They might as well just get rid of him or at least him, uh, his knowledge so that the New Republic can never access it. Yeah, smart. Yeah. And you haven't been and watching The Bad Batch, right? No, I have not. Oh, okay, never mind. I'm not going to say anything. All right. Okay. Uh, I will soon. We will do a wrap-up of the entire season soon, so stay tuned for that. Um, but I'll, I'll have to binge it before we do <laughs> we, before we do that. Uh, and I'm looking forward to it because you kind of tease a few things. You always ask about whether I've watched it in very interesting moments. Uh, so that really has my uh, hopes up high. Well, I think you're not going to like it binging it. If you're watching it week to week, I think you'd like it a lot more, <laughs> just to say. Mm, but I, I guess we're going to find out. <laughs> it's too late now. <laughs> okay, so we come to the end of this episode, and I immediately thought, as Mando was telling um, Bo, that he's going to bring her to the uh, covert, uh, that, oh my God, there is a Vizsla here. <laughs> How is that going to play out? This is going <laughs> to be a lot of conflict in the future. I love it. Um, and yeah, so they arrive. Everybody's kind of like uh, not giving them the warmest of welcome. Uh, Din tells the cultists about the minds of Mandalore and they don't like Vizsla doesn't believe him. Everybody else is like, yeah, maybe, maybe, who knows? Oh, that's interesting. Um, and kind of Bo tries to vouch for him, but who doesn't matter because she's not part of the cult uh which is just hilarious um and you can just see Bo is kind of just taking it all in especially as they lead them inside she just sees all of these mandalorians and i could just i mean we don't see her face at all we just see her in her gear that i could just see her gears turning oh like this could be potential soldiers for my cause uh that was my interpretation. I don't know how you feel about it. Exactly. Especially because of what happens next. And, you know, because obviously they have the whole discussion with the armorer about, okay, did, did didn't actually go to the uh, mines and bathe in the waters or is he still in upper state? And then, you know, the, the armorer confirms, obviously. And then we come to almost one of like not the but one of my highlights of the in, this entire episode so far uh or like just generally because this is literally the last thing that happens but uh she explains to Bo that because she hasn't taken off her helmet since she was in the waters in the mines she could join the cult which i thought as well this might be so tempting for her to get power to get back on track and kind of you know, amass people around her to fight for her cause. And so I'm so curious about what's going to happen next. Uh, what do you make of all of this? That's exactly my thought. I think it's either that or it's meant to put her in direct contrast to the loneliness she had in the first couple episodes. So mm -hmm. maybe it's just her and the opposite side of that being like, oh, I found people who would actually accept me instead of leave me if I don't have a dark saber. So it's either mm -hmm. that she's going to really actually care and like, maybe not like 
um, not take off her helmet ever again. She's just going to like do that in secret <laughs> or whatever. Um, <laughs> but I think it's either that or, yeah, as you said, she's going to use this as a tool for gaining more power, which I imagine that's the case. And then I imagine yeah. that um, that might create conflict between her and Din Djarin if she starts to turn some of the people inside the covert to her own side. But that, that also, I, I totally agree with what you said. I think, you know, I don't think she's going to become basically a nun at this point. That's not just not her personality, no matter how hard the last few months were for her and the loneliness. But she just wants the power and she's going to do what it takes. Um, but it did, you know, ask a very interesting question of who's going to buckle first in their beliefs, Bo or Din? Because they are literally on two different sides of the spectrum. And it's just so interesting to to see them in now a completely new environment. In the environment that Din sees as normal and that Bo just thinks is weird. Because until this point, the two of them have always ever been in a place where Bo could just basically tell the, uh, the cult off. And just like, oh, this bullshit, uh, you're following a cult all of that, but now she's literally in the cult. Yeah, it's just really ironic, but I guess we'll find out what happens. Yeah, I guess we will next week when we come back to our coverage of The Mandalorian. Uh, thanks to everybody who's been listening. Uh, and if you've enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with all of our new episodes. And for Rashad, I'm Chris. Talk to you next time. Bye.